Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the 2022 LME nickel crisis, a huge short position driven by one of China's largest nickel producers in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, culminated in a huge squeeze and ultimately a disorderly market and the suspension of the LME. At one point on March 8th, $20 billion worth was owed in margin calls from various LME brokers, banks and Xinjiang Holdings itself. We never got to see whether this would have caused systemic risk because the LME suspended trading and rewound the clock. In the process, raising questions of moral hazard and generating a number of lawsuits. On the anniversary of the event, Jack Farchi, senior commodities correspondent at Bloomberg, joins the show to unpick what happened and what the lessons learnt might be. Jack is also the co-author of The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources, published in 2021. Both Jack and his co-author, Javier Blas, joined us in episode 39 of the HC Insider podcast to discuss that book. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Jack, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me back. We are talking, and if all goes to plan, this episode will go out on March 8th, 2023, and and that will be a year to the day of one of the most momentous days in LME history, uh, the London Metals Exchange and the so-called nickel crisis, when essentially, and we'll get to the at the end of the story at the end of the podcast, but they, they reset the clock and all of the fallout that that had. So we're talking the 2022 nickel crisis on the LME and what happened, who are the players and what some of the learnings that has come from that and some of the things that have yet to be resolved. But let's start, if we may, with the LME because we need to set up how it works and what it is in order to understand what happened on March 7th and March 8th a year ago. So can we start with the LME, Jack? What, what is its function and how roughly is it set up? Yeah, I mean, so the LME is the London Metal Exchange. It's the it's the global marketplace for industrial metals. There's six major metals that are traded on the LME. It's aluminium, copper, nickel, lead, zinc, and tin. And it really has its origins in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, and a time in history when Britain was the industrial powerhouse of the world. And so Britain was buying lots of industrial metals from around the world and the people who were importing and trading these metals came together to start trading with one another and offsetting risk with one another agreeing who was going to sell what to whom and it formally uh, was established the london metal exchange although there are records of people trading metals in london drawing circles in 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 the sawdust of uh, of coffee shops uh, that go back for for hundreds of years before that but it was formally established in 1877 and one of the key things that that people who know a little bit about the LME tend to know is that the contracts, the benchmark contracts, and when you talk about what's the price of copper today, the answer that somebody most likely will give you will be the LME contract for delivery in three months' time. And the reason for that is a historical one, is in the 19th century when the LME started up, the two key metals that everyone was trading and that were the most important and valuable were tin and copper. The tin came from Malaysia. The copper, principally from Chile, the shipping time from Chile to 
to the UK was was three months, and the shipping time from Malaysia to the UK was about three months. And so, the the time period that people were agreeing these forward contracts for was about three months. And so that became the standard contract that everyone traded was the three month contract. And so the LME is a little bit idiosyncratic. It doesn't work quite like other markets that other commodity futures markets that people might be more familiar with, like oil, where you just have one contract for delivery each month. There's a certain day, which is the the final day of trading. And that's the that that's that month's contract. The LME has a contract for every single business day. Each day, the benchmark contract, the contract that you or I might talk about if we're talking about the price of copper, is the one for delivery in three months' time. So today, it's the contract for delivery uh, in three months' time. But tomorrow, it'll be the contract for delivery one day later. And every day, it changes. That makes for quite a complicated market structure where there are lots of people who have exposure to lots of different daily contracts. And that creates this world where you have a lot of specialist brokers who deal in managing different exposure to different dates and uh, offsetting their own uh, risk with other people on the LME. And that gives rise to the fact that the LME is one of the last exchanges in the world that still has open outcry trading, only just, I should say, since COVID. Uh, But it does Mm. still have open outcry trading. And one of the reasons for that is this rather complex date structure, which makes for, for relatively illiquid bits of the market where at least the proponents of of the ring, as the LME's open outcry trading floor is known, say the the best way that you can really manage that is to have uh, a bunch of specialist people getting together around a ring of red leather armchairs, red leather sofas, and shouting at each other. And that's the best way to to trade this rather complicated market. Let's just dig into that a little because these these members, these brokers are crucial because so all the trades are going through them if you're not a member. And therefore, sort of the margining requirements, the need to put up cash against your trades, uh, which goes up and down depending on the scale of your trades and which way they're heading, all sits with these individuals. So there's an incredible sort of concentration of liquidity risk sat in that group. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one of the key things to understand about the LME is that it's still very much a physical marketplace and it still has a lot of physical users. And secondly, that, as you say, clients of the brokers on the LME will trade through their broker's account. And so each broker will have its own margin position on the LME, which is the agglomeration of all of its different clients. Now, that can make a situation where the brokers are able to offer relatively cheap credit to their clients, because if you've got one set of clients who are long and another set of clients who are short, a set of metal, you know, if we're talking about the nickel market, you've got a bunch of nickel consumers on one side and nickel producers on the other side, and you're a broker, you have some longs and some shorts, the market goes up, well, the shorts will need to pay up in margin, and the longs will have some money. So you can extend some credit to the shorts and say, um, because it all goes through your, your clearing account, you as a broker maybe don't need to make any margin call if they all match out perfectly. And so instead of saying to the short positions, you need to give us some some money immediately, you can extend some credit to them, maybe charge them some money for that. And so that's one of the ways in which the way that the LME's margining system produces this, this business model of some of the specialist metals brokers. It's a, it's a way of margining that the big hedge funds really hate because it creates a credit exposure in there. You know, if your broker goes bust, then you're mixed up potentially with a bunch of their other, their other accounts. 
Yeah. Is it relevant in this discussion? Because there's lots of different sort of levels of membership. Does that play into this or really, I mean, is that sufficient for us to continue our story? No, I think that's I think that's probably sufficient. I mean, the other thing I think to understand about the LME is that it has and probably not totally dissimilar to, to other futures markets, but but in part because of the complexity of this date system and in part for other reasons, there is this lively market in over-the-counter contracts that are essentially LME lookalike contracts. So a lot of people are trading with a broker, which could be a large bank or it could be a specialist broker, whatever it might be. And instead of actually having their, their trades put through onto the LME, they're trading an over-the-counter contract with their broker, which just looks like an LME contract because it's easier, it's cheaper. Maybe they prefer to trade a monthly contract rather than a daily contract and then have to worry about all the different spreads the different days. They'd rather just have a contract that looks like WTI and they could trade June copper rather than having to worry about which date in June the copper is for. And one of the solutions for that is to trade an over-the-counter contract. So there's this very lively and quite large over-the-counter market that sits behind the LME and creates a whole new set of exposures for the brokers and also makes it harder for the exchange and the regulators, particularly the exchange, to see exactly who has what position. Yeah, and this is this point of amplification where, you know, it, it, all of this works as the setup you've described when you've got a, a functioning balanced market and people are, you know, rough, roughly there are an equal number of people on either side of the trade. It's when it goes out of whack and they have this amplification of the the risks that we get to what the setup for March uh, last year. But let's OK, so that's excellent. Thanks, Jack. Now, the nickel market itself. So nickel obviously goes into stainless steel. It's an important element, as we've covered, for energy transition in batteries. And typically, as I understand it, you're, well, if you're a producer of nickel, you're typically forward selling uh, as a as a hedge on the LME. Can you just sort of set that up for us? Because that's going to play into uh, Singshan Holdings, uh, which is the, the nickel producer that sits at the centre of this story. Yeah, so I think, as I mentioned earlier, typically nickel producers, if they want to hedge their their price risk and, and, and lock in prices, they do that by selling forward on the LME. Similarly, consumers, as in any other commodity, so big consumers of nickel is things like the stainless steel industry and increasingly the battery industry might hedge by buying contracts forward on the LME. And then in between those two, you have a whole load of familiar characters, the banks, the brokers, the speculators who are trading in and out of the market, making liquidity, taking positions. Uh, Probably the main dynamic of the nickel market that it's important to understand in this story, and there are lots of different things that feed into this story and they all have some relevance and some of them have more relevance depending on what your perspective is. Uh, but one of the important things to understand about the nickel market is that it's growing enormously rapidly at the moment, largely because of the growth of, uh, of electric vehicles and batteries. So nickel is one of the, is one of the key elements in the cathode uh, of, of many EV batteries, not all of them, but many of them. Uh, and so the nickel market is growing very rapidly. but not all nickel is ever turned into nickel metal, pure nickel, which is the type that's deliverable on the LME. And particularly as as Indonesia has risen as a huge producer of nickel, which is now by far the world's largest producer of nickel, it goes up every month. But I think as of today, it accounts for something like 50% of the global nickel market. As Indonesia has risen as a huge producer, Indonesia is producing a lot of nickel that is never converted into nickel metal. 
So some of it is is a kind of ferronickel, things like nickel pig iron, which can go straight into the into the stainless steel industry without ever being turned into metal, without ever being turned into pure nickel. And some of it is things like nickel matte, nickel sulfate, which can go straight into the battery industry without ever being turned into pure nickel metal. And so you have this growing market, but actually not a growing nickel metal market. So for example, at the moment, the global annual nickel production is about 3 million tonnes, of which the nickel metal, pure nickel metal production is about 800,000 tonnes. Now, that's not necessarily a huge problem for a market. There are lots of markets where lots of people use the market who can't actually physically deliver their specific product to the market, but it does potentially create an issue where you have a larger and larger uh, volume of of underlying physical business using this market, but a relatively small amount that can actually be delivered. Yeah, which sets us up nicely. Okay, so so enter stage left, Mr. Shang Guangda, who is the, the founder and chairman of Singshang Holdings, one of the largest nickel producers, again, out of Indonesia, you mentioned. Fascinating story, but, you know, rags to riches and, you know, you know uh, worth, uh, worth over a billion dollars, or at least, uh, you know, he was prior to these events. And he, this is early 2022, you've got the looming Russian invasion. He has a lot of production that is going to come online that he knows about. And he essentially sets up a thesis for a big trade. And he's known as Mr. Big Shot. So can you, can you set us up with, uh, with Shang's thesis and, uh, and, and what his view of the market is? Well, you're right to say he's he's a very interesting character. Uh, I mean, he really is the great disruptor of the nickel market. He's a bit like an Elon Musk of nickel. You know, I mentioned earlier how Indonesia has grown from being almost zero in nickel probably 10 years ago to being 50% of the global market today. And a lot of the reason for that is Shang Guangda and Tsing Shan. He has pioneered several of the key technological in- innovations that have made that happen. And he's also been one of the main investors in Indonesia and backing Indonesia as a source of nickel when 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 most other people didn't see it. And that dates back to long before batteries were, were something that anyone was getting excited about. He was already revolutionizing the stainless steel industry. He also very clearly has a taste for for trading. So, you know, the last time before last year that we were writing a lot about Tsingshan, it was in 2019, when instead of being short the LME, he went long. And in fact, was responsible for for quite a big market squeeze because he bought a load of nickel, took delivery of it. It was at a time when Indonesia was talking about restricting exports and the price spiked. So fast forward to to 2022, and he was in the opposite situation. His investments in Indonesia were set to increase production a lot. I think it's fair to say a lot of people in the market were sceptical that he was going to hit anything near the kind of numbers that he was talking about. But he obviously was not sceptical and he thought that Indonesian production was going to increase massively and that that was going to weigh on on the nickel price. And so he was going to have an excess of nickel to sell. And he started building this bet on the LME. I mean, bet, was it a bet? Was it a hedge? I think I would say the annals of commodity trading are rich in stories of companies that have mixed up hedging and, and speculation. And it's usually quite hard to distinguish one from the other. But if you're if you're only hedging when you're bearish, then it's clearly not a pure, not only a hedge. And that's how I would characterize his trade. So he builds up this position, put on through a number of different LME brokers and banks, both 
over the counter and on the exchange, also through a number of different trading entities connected to him. And overall, by kind of February, March, it's something approaching 200,000 tonnes of nickel, certainly more than 150,000 tonnes. Of course, we don't actually have the hard numbers on this because there's no reporting requirements on on the clients of the exchange to tell anyone how big their positions are. And then he starts to run into trouble. Just before we get to, to run into trouble, because I think it's really... So he's he's obviously done these via brokers on the... It is a trade. It's very much a speculative trade. It's a viewpoint on the market. It is not a hedge. And it's a massive one. I don't know what that works out. 200,000 tonnes times, you know, at the time, I think nickel was, let's say, $15,000 a tonne. I mean, it's a very big, big one. But he's also... So you mentioned there about the banks, because the, he's done the same trade with the banks who then themselves had to go and hedge that position by essentially taking the same position as him on the LME as well, because this is where that amplification comes in. Can you just help us understand that as well? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that uh, the LME has this lively over-the-counter market where people are trading LME lookalike contracts, but they're not actually contracts that go through the exchange. So in this instance, Mr. Mr. Shang, Singshan, other companies connected to him were selling OTC contracts through a whole group of banks. And then the banks, of course, were in a position where they were long and they needed to offset the risk because they'd they'd taken the other side of his sale. Uh, and so the obvious way that you do that is sell on the LME. So the banks then had a position, a short position on the LME, but it was not his position, but their position taken as a hedge for the OTC position that they had with them. Actually, it gets even more complicated than that, because in some instances, he had a short position OTC with a bank, who then had another OTC position with another bank, who then had a position on the LME, or even a longer chain than that. But that then creates the scenario where, when you start to have cash flow problems for him, that it then ripples across the whole the whole banking industry. <laughs> okay, so we're still with you, right? So he's got this, he's got this thesis, and he starts to run into trouble. And that trouble is recognised, blood in the water, by some of the uh, his big competitors and hedge funds and so forth. Let's, let's start at that where, where you left off. He starts to run into trouble. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that actually of the three million ton global nickel market, only about eight hundred thousand tons is of the kind that's deliverable on the LME. And a key fact to understand of how this became a blood in the water situation is. About 25% of that 800,000 tonnes is produced by Norilsk Nickel. In February, March of 2022, I mean, actually, the market started to move up already in January. I think probably maybe a little bit on speculation of that something would happen with Russia, but I think probably more on optimism about electric vehicles. By February and certainly after the after Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, Nickel was clearly one of the most popular ways to trade the risk of commodity flows from Russia being severely disrupted. I mean, both from a speculative point of view, if you're a hedge fund and you want to take a bet on it, but also obviously if you're a physical player and you're managing your risk, you might not want to be too too short on the LME when Russia has just invaded Ukraine and everyone's worrying about the disruption of flows of commodities out of Russia because Norilsk Nickel is, while it's a big player in the global nickel market, it's a really big player in the LME deliverable nickel market. And so Mr. Shang's short position starts to get squeezed. He, I think, uh, I think was was probably covering to some extent in 
late February and early March. But I mean, from everything that we know, we're still current on his on his margin calls. And then you have a few days when the market really took off and became very disorderly. Well, so, OK, so before we get to disorderly markets, so he's holding this position prior to and subsequent to, despite as the the, the warnings from the Americans and the Brits on a, an invasion being not only possible, but indeed highly likely. And, you know, we start to see, obviously, that's a compelling fundamental reason why prices would go the other way, as you've spoken to. And then we sort of, we, it all starts to culminate around March 7th, which is when the markets get disorderly and we go from a squeeze into a, a death spiral. Can you start us on March 7th and just walk us through how that culminates the following day in those momentous decisions that the LME makes? Yeah, so on March 7th, you have the biggest move in any metal in the LME's history. And it only fades into insignificance by comparison with what was about to happen on March the 8th. But the nickel price moved, depending on exactly how you measure it, 66% in the course of March 7th. It had already moved quite a bit the previous, this was a Monday, March the 7th, it had already moved quite a bit the previous Friday. And already some participants in the market were struggling to make margin calls. Our reporting suggests that Chang's companies, Qingshan and other entities that he was trading on the LME through did make some margin calls on Monday the 7th, but at some point they struggled. We've also reported that CCBI, which is you know the international broking unit on the LME of uh, China Construction Bank, missed a margin call uh, on the LME on, on March the 7th. It, it paid the money the next day. The LME gave it more time, didn't put it into default, and it paid the money next day. But you had this situation where numerous participants, many of them with a connection to these trades that had been put on by Shang, but not all of them, because this, these moves were extreme. And there are other people who were short nickel for all kinds of reasons, either speculatively or as hedges, who were also getting put under severe margin pressure. And so the market just rocketed up in this short squeeze as people began to realize that there were companies that, are go that were going to the wall. People began to, to hear about Tsingshan's position. I mean, Bloomberg had reported, in fact, back in the middle of February, that Tsingshan had a big position and was being, was being squeezed on the nickel market. And that created this, this enormous move on the Monday. And at that point, there was an awful lot of pain across the, the LME and across the nickel market. There were intraday margin calls of $7 billion on March the 7th, which is a vast number for the LME. In fact, to the extent that in the early afternoon on the March 7th, the LME decided to just stop making intraday margin calls because it had made so many that it felt like it couldn't continue <laughs> asking for margin from, from its traders. So this is a situation where I think there's a lot of good arguments why the market at this point was not in a normal state. You know, we can argue about the, the, the technical definition of the word disorderly, but the market was not normal. You know, if you have a market where the initial margin that people are putting up to trade a contract, a, a ton of nickel is two or three thousand thousand dollars a ton and the market moves twenty thousand dollars a ton in one session then it's pretty obvious that you're going to have companies who can't pay their margin calls and that's exactly what you had and the problem was that you had an extremely large company with an extremely large 
position that couldn't pay its margin calls, and that that then was held across. Yeah, exactly. And you know, these big banks, you know, having themselves facing multi-billion-dollar margin calls as well. So everyone has a sleepless night. We wake up March eighth. There's some protestations that you know it will calm down and so forth, and things start off even more dramatically than than how they closed the the day before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's some there's some echoes of the of the Archegos uh, story in this, where at some point the banks realise that uh, <laughs> that it's not just them who has a position for Tsingshan, but every other everyone else on the streets who also has the same position, and there's a kind of race to try and cover positions among some of Tsingshan's brokers, maybe some brokers who have who have other clients as well who are, who are not playing their margin calls, and at this point the market goes totally parabolic. So one of the really interesting decisions that the LME made was to allow the market to reopen. LME trading runs, uh, it stops electronically at about 7pm London time. And the LME allowed it to reopen then as usual at 1am London time, i.e. for the Asian trading day. It was fairly quiet for a few hours. And then the market just took off and it went from $50,000 to $100,000 in a matter of a few hours. And in fact, one one of the moves of about $30,000 happened in about 20 minutes. And at this point, as the LME has said, uh, if, they'd, if they'd made margin calls at that point, the total margin call across the market would have been $20 billion. And I think, you know, when, you're, when we're talking about this, uh, it's obviously fascinating from the point of view of the LME and the metals market and all the rest of it. But for people outside of that world, I think maybe you, you, don't, you wouldn't realise from the way that it's played out quite how close we came to a real wider financial markets disaster. You know, we're talking about a central counterparty, a clearinghouse here that came very, very, very close to failure. And that's the kind of risk that since Lehman Brothers, right, everyone has been worrying about and saying, oh, well, that's that's the we've we've transferred risk from from banks into into CCPs. So we better make sure that the CCPs go, don't go down. And here we had a situation where the Elamis clearinghouse came very, very close to going down. I mean, we can discuss the counterfactual of if they hadn't cancelled the trades, if they hadn't put stopped the market, what would have happened? Would would the clearinghouse have failed? But I think, you know, what, what we can say with great certainty is they came pretty close. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focus solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. And this will play out over the next month or so as other energy markets and commodity markets become volatile as well. And lots of questions start getting raised about systemic risk as a result of the energy and commodities world. And that's a, a separate discussion. But at, at this point, at this moment in time, the LME sees fit to make this extraordinary move of cancelling the trades, rewinding the clock. So take us there. So yeah, at about 6am London time, this is on, on March the 8th, the nickel price hits a high of $101,000. The LME at that point is in frantic meetings trying to work out what to do. By 8.15, the price has come back down to $80,000, but still 
an exceptionally high price and the LME suspends the market. At that point, the big question mark is, are people going to have to pay margin calls at 9am, which is when margin calls, intraday margin calls typically start coming due? Are people going to have to pay margin calls based on the price of nickel of $80,000? Because if they are, a lot of them are going to go bust. A lot of clients, you know, traders of nickel and a lot of brokers on the London Metal Exchange. And they start calling the LME and saying, if you make us margin at $80,000, we're bust. So a couple of hours later, the LME comes out and says, okay, we've made a decision. We're going to cancel all the trades that took place on March the 8th. And so effectively wind back the clock and pretend that the market ended on March the 7th when the closing price was about $48,000. And all of those trades that took that happened between $48,000 and $101,000 and back to $80,000, all of those are cancelled. And so if everyone can pay their margin based on the price of $48,000, then 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 that's fine. Much to the chagrin of a number of hedge funds who subsequently sue the LME, um, you know, who've, uh, who have to give up significant profits and the LME has some legally sound and rather cute arguments about the difference between essentially kind of an agreed trade and an actually executed trade and, you know, win that. But this has and, and this is okay, so let's this is sort of act three now, but essentially they've they've reset it. There's there's sort of ructions over the next few days and as they're sort of trying to get a functioning market back. But sort of the point of crisis is over and that's essentially been achieved by this unprecedented act of winding back the clock and undoing all of these trades and a few uh, traders who thought they'd made a uh, you know hundreds of millions are uh, got rather upset over it understandably so let's start so what what at this point has happened to uh, mr big shot mr shang how much has he uh, lost at the point of, of of march or you know the end of day march 8 uh several billion dollars certainly i'm not sure i have an exact number to hand certain uh, uh from what uh we've reported 10 billion it was the, the rough he missed margin calls in the billions of dollars it depends what price of nickel what what the price of nickel is that you use i mean if if the price of nickel had been allowed to stand at 80,000 or 100,000 dollars then yes the number would be something 10 billion dollars or or probably north of that as it was i think it's probably something more like 3 or 4 billion dollars which is still a very sizable amount of money. And and unfortunately for him, more money than he could afford to pay in margin in, in one day. So he's in crunch meetings at this point with his banks. His banks start arriving, uh, arriving to his offices in Shanghai on the afternoon of uh, in, in China of that Tuesday, the 8th. By some point in the evening, there were 50 different uh, bankers there, we've reported. And he starts negotiating with them. He's at heart a businessman and a trader, and he starts negotiating. For him, ironically, the position is in some ways better than for his banks, because he knows. I mean, it's the old, it's the old it's saying. The old, you know, yeah, if, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. if you owe the bank a million dollars, then you've got a problem. If you owe it a hundred million dollars, the bank's got a problem. Yeah. The banks had a bigger problem than he did at this point. They couldn't afford for him to default and for them to be stuck with these short positions that they then had, which were hedges for his positions with them on the LME. And they would then have to be in the position of trying to buy nickel in a market where nobody was selling. And they would then be wearing these losses in the billions of dollars. And so they sat down, they haggled it out. And over a, over a period of days, they agreed to finance his margin calls until the price came back down. 
he put up some some additional security to try to give them a bit more comfort, including a personal guarantee, which for him in Chinese business culture, that's a pretty big deal. But essentially, they agreed to to keep running the trade and hope the price would come back down. Which eventually it does, of course, and he obviously has the the capacity to to bring that price back down. He has the physical metal. We'll come on to well today. Let's cover it now. He's you know they're still in business. Reputedly lost just a, a billion, but uh, could easily weather that storm given the size of his operation and his empire. And uh, lives to bet another day. Basically, is sort of the story of of, of Mr. Shang, right? Yes, I mean one thing to say about him is that. He did have the underlying physical nickel business to back up his hedge. A problem that he had was that he couldn't deliver anything to the LME because he wasn't producing LME deliverable nickel metal, but he was producing nickel. And so to the extent that the nickel price going up cost him a lot of money in margin calls on the LME, it also meant that his nickel business made more money. So there was a logic to, to the idea of him having a short nickel position, and there was a logic to why banks would agree to, to finance him through it. And so indeed, while he made about a, a billion dollars of losses, uh, we've reported on on the pure LME position uh, part of it, obviously the high nickel price has benefited his nickel business. And so he's doing more or less fine. The other side of this story then comes back to the LME exchanges, um, moral hazard and even its structure. You know, let's say that the story that sort of went worldwide was you know, first, very much about sort of the nickel crisis itself and uh, the volatility and the, the systemic risk it might present. The wash up uh, the weekend following was very much about moral hazard and the the question of if people aren't held to the trades that they've made and you're suddenly getting an exchange just making decisions that benefit one party over another. Where does that fall legally? Where does that fall in terms of the mechanics of trading and the incentives around it? And a lot of the articles written, included by colleagues of yours at Bloomberg, are, you know, if we were to do that trade and got awfully overlevered and extended, you know, there'd be very little sympathy for us. But kind of using your analogy of when you, you know, the scale at which Xingshan are, the LME couldn't afford to push those trades through, right? So maybe we can sort of start there. Yeah. You know, talk to us about that. I think that's right. I mean, it's easy to present, and it's certainly true that what the LME did involved ended up bailing out Tsingshan. Tsingshan was saved by the LME. But it's also the LME's argument, and they clearly have a reasonable case to make, whether or not you agree with it, is that their aim was not to bail out Tsingshan and to save Tsingshan, but was to save the integrity of the marketplace, because if they hadn't cancelled the trades, then a whole load of different brokers would have gone bust. I mean, they say that the the stability of the LME itself was never in question. But I think if you if you take a look at some of the filings that they've made in in one of the lawsuits that's working its way through the courts at the moment, it's much harder to be certain of that. I think the reality is, if the trades had been allowed to stand, if the eighty thousand dollar nickel price had been uh, allowed to stand, then the solvency of, of the clearinghouse would de- or the future of the clearinghouse certainly would definitely have been in question. So they've said seven brokers would have gone bust if they'd asked people to pay margin at, uh, at $80,000. That would have blown a $2.6 billion hole in the clearinghouse's funds. It would have w- wiped out the entire default fund. And then the knock-on effect of that would have been they'd have had to make a call on clearing members 
to contribute more capital to the to the clearinghouse, which they're allowed to do. There's a whole set of rules about how clearinghouses handle defaults, and they can do that. But then another five members would have gone bust because they wouldn't have been able to afford to make those contributions. And then there would have been another hole that they would have then had to have made another call. And 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 it's pretty hard to to know exactly how that would have ended. And I think there's a good chance it might have ended with the end of uh, the end of the LME clearinghouse and possibly the end of the LME itself, which is why I said earlier, you know, we came really close to a to a situation where a central counterparty went under and that would have had pretty dramatic ripple effects across financial markets. I mean, I, I'm certainly not the person to predict exactly what those would have been. And I think the reality is it's something we've, we've all, we, you know, we've never seen in modern times before. You know, modern financial regulation and modern clearinghouses were set up in such a way as to make sure that wouldn't happen. When you look back in history at some of the examples, it's things like the palm oil market in Kuala Lumpur in the 1980s. But in modern times, we haven't had this kind of situation. I mean, you know, Lehman Brothers is like an analog, but of a different um, of a different sort of entity. Yes, they bailed out uh, Tingshan, but that wasn't. But but you know, they had a good argument for taking action, even if you end up thinking that they did the wrong thing. They had there's certainly an argument for why they took action that was not just because you know they liked Tingshan, which uh, they say they weren't preferring any any particular market participant. Yeah, yeah, and we should note at this point that the LME is owned by a, a Chinese company. And make of that of what you will, but the uh, you know the, the the fascinating thing about this is when you sort of step back and 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 the lawsuits make fascinating reading as well. And and as you say, the LME presents a very plausible case. Is that it came really close to a catastrophe. So what has the LME done structurally to address this and prevent this kind of thing happening going forward? They have done a couple of things that I think mean that what happened in the nickel market with Tsingshan in March won't happen again like that. So the main thing that they've done is introduced daily price limits. So now LME metals can't move more than 15% in a day, which immediately would dramatically slow down the situation where the nickel price moved 66% one day and then 100% the next day, 270% in three trading sessions. That would now take an, an awful lot longer. And that's why you have those kind of circuit breakers, daily price limits on other exchanges is to slow it down and to allow things to happen like Singshan and other players to line up their banks to finance their their margin positions if they if they need that. So that's one thing that I think has changed the situation somewhat, although I guess you could still argue that the whole thing could still happen, but just in slower motion. Just slow motion, yeah. <laughs> I think there's an element of truth to that, but there's also an element in which that's that's probably not true. A lot of what was happening on March the seventh and March the eighth was driven by panic and the speed of the market move. You know, you had an extremely large liquid financial institution like China Construction Bank failing to make a margin call because they couldn't move enough cash in time. It's not because they didn't have the cash. They're one of the world's largest banks. But they didn't ever think that they were going to have to move that much cash in that short space of time. So I think I think a part of it was to do with the speed and that has been slowed down by the LME introducing daily price limits. The other thing that they've done already is they've introduced a reporting requirement forcing their members to report to them OTC positions of the members and of their clients. So the LME does now, at least in theory, have better oversight over the over the counter bit of the market than it did before before March seventh, March eighth. 
I mean, another thing that we can that we can certainly talk about the extent to which you think that the LME or indeed the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, which regulates the market, had the the market surveillance clout, the wherewithal to properly understand the data that they were getting and to and to act on it in real time as this was happening. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier, Bloomberg reported that Singshan had a big short position on the LME back in the middle of February. It was not a secret. And yet, as has become clear in the LME's comments and their legal filings, they were not nearly aware of the scale of the position until the week of March the 7th. But what could they have done even if, you know, so they were still well within their rights to have that position, right? I mean, what would the LME's potential responses been if they'd recognised in February that someone had this very large position? I mean, wouldn't that, you'd end up at the same place, wouldn't you, where they are having an impact on a market that, you know, is not, that therefore creates these distortions as opposed to allowing a, you know, uh, you know, raising margins, perhaps, I guess would be the answer. But, you know, yeah, I mean, what, would, what do you think they would have done? I think a very obvious thing to do is to is to raise margins. And, you know, you talked earlier about the the systemic issues in commodity markets and and probably, yes, they haven't been fixed by regulation or by market structure. But one thing that has happened is that margin requirements across all markets have gone up dramatically. And that's had a knock on effect, which is that it's it's drained liquidity out of markets. It's made it very expensive to trade on derivatives markets, but it has taken some of that risk of dramatic market moves out of those markets because there's now the margin there to to, to wear some of that that risk and to handle the volatility that we're now seeing. Um, so that's certainly one thing they could have done. I mean, they could have put in place trading bans earlier. They could have, uh, I mean, you know, the LME has, they have pretty wide authority under the rules. I mean, you've seen they're claiming that they had the perfect authority under their rules to suspend trading and cancel a day of trading. Their rules give them pretty wide authority. They could have tried to either formally through their rules to to force Xinjiang to reduce its position or informally, the LME has quite a lot of soft power over the market to lean on Xinjiang, its brokers, to reduce the positions. I mean, you could have an argument about whether that would have been a useful thing to do or not, because it might have just caused the squeeze to happen sooner. But I think it's hard to argue that the LME was really on top of this in the run up to the short squeeze. And I think if you were the regulator and you were you were setting policy, you would want to make sure that the exchange, I mean, arguably the regulator too, would be much better informed in these kind of events in the future. So in the final analysis, are we essentially sort of saying that it was a highly volatile time, you had a big geopolitical shock, the first land invasion of another country by Russia for, you know, since the Second World War, effectively, um, in Europe, that is, alongside this, you know, a big shift in the macroeconomics of nickel related to energy transition. And it was a perfect storm. And essentially, the LME has moved to largely within their powers, prevent it happening again. And really, it was just a product of an aberration and very interesting for economic historians to look back on. Or do you think it signals a broader issue of how a lot of these commodity markets operate and trade might not be fit for a world where the speed and velocity of trading and information has dramatically changed and the, and also the risks have gone up dramatically i mean i know there's a pretty philosophical question but you know <laughs> how in the final analysis how do you think this will be viewed it's a lot of big questions i mean i think let's take the lme first of all i think the lme has a big and has done since as long as I've been writing about it, 
10, 15 years and much longer than that has a big kind of strategic dilemma, which is to what extent does it want to be just an exchange for the physical metals world? And to what extent does it want to be an exchange that is bringing on all of those financial flows from hedge funds and investors who want exposure to, to metals prices? Obviously, as a business, an exchange makes money from volume. And so you want all of the financial players and you want as much volume as possible. And they tend to be the people who deliver that. On the other hand, the thing that gives the LME its unique selling point is the fact that its contracts are used as references in pretty much all of the physical metals contracts around the world. But that creates some dilemmas. So I mentioned earlier, you have a lot of small and specialist brokers on the LME. Part of that is because they're catering to the physical metals world. Part of the reason why the LME was so loath to allow, you know, seven or 12 of its brokers to go under, and I think we can fairly assume that those were largely the smaller brokers, is because it knew that those were the brokers who cater to the physical metals industry. And if you allow them to go under, it would hurt the physical, metal in physical metals industry significantly. Part of the reason why perhaps they were uh, in a position where they would go under is because of this margining system that we discussed earlier, this discussion of CVM versus RVM, which I'm afraid I'm not a specialist in, but margining on the LME works differently to other exchanges, in part because that's how the physical metals industry likes it and the small brokers that, that service the physical metals industry like it. The big hedge funds hate it. So part of it is this strategic dilemma that the LME faces. And I think this is a bit of a, a crunch moment for that. I suspect that we will see the LME in future beginning to look a little bit more like other exchanges. Uh, some of the idiosyncratic bits of the LME will start to will start to go. In terms of the wider question, I mean, I think you're right when you say we haven't really addressed the issue of systemic risks in commodity markets. We haven't really addressed the issue. I mean, you know, the address the way of addressing it has been to jack up margin requirements and to totally drain liquidity out of the markets, which is not a solution. And so I think this is the, to some extent, it's the canary in the coal mine telling us there's a problem here and it can cause big global important markets where lots of big important global financial institutions trade and have big exposures to go under. And so we still haven't got to a situation where commodity derivative markets are able to manage the extreme volatility we're seeing at the moment. And there's enough liquidity available to people to hold positions on those markets. And so I still think we have uh, a problem there. Obviously, it feels slightly less acute today than it did in March 2022, because prices are that much lower and volatility has come down a bit. But but I don't think any of the, the structural issues have gone away. And neither has the big geopolitical issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine gone away. And so and so I think there, it's still a an open question whether this is going to be seen as a one off or the canary in the coal mine that that people in in commodity markets in financial markets more generally should have listened to much more carefully or hopefully we all will yeah fascinating well i think you've uh, summed it up nicely and it's uh, it is a story that i think will continue to to rumble when do we expect of any resolution on these various lawsuits that are outstanding so the key one is what's called a judicial review um, because the lme performs a, a regulatory role it's quite hard to sue the LME as a company. So instead, you do what's called a judicial review in the UK legal system. Elliott, the hedge fund, and Jane Street, the, the prop trading firm, have brought uh, a judicial review. 
the expectation, I think, is that that will end up in court sometime this year, possibly the middle of this year. So I think we can expect that. I mean, the LME has already published, they commissioned an independent review of what happened, which has recommended a whole long set of recommendations, including things on daily price limits and over-the-counter market reporting that I already mentioned and the LME has already put in place, but including a lot of other things, position limits, that kind of thing, improved governance. This is Oliver Wyman's paper. The Oliver Wyman review, exactly. The LME has said that they're going to come out with an action plan for how to implement all of those different recommendations in the next couple of months. So we should see that pretty soon and then things will start to change and be implemented, although obviously some of them already have. And the other outstanding thing is the Bank of England and the FCA have launched what's called Section 166 reviews into the LME and LME clears governance decision making. Essentially, you know, did they did they make the right call? Did they follow the right processes? And those are ongoing and outstanding as far as we know. They were announced in April last year and the Bank of England, neither the Bank of England nor the FCA, nor indeed the LME has said anything about them since. Well, I guess it's uh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes open. Jack, thank you very much for, for coming on and uh, and discussing the, the LME nickel crisis. I also want to give, you, to give a moment to your book, The World for Sale, with your co-author Javier Blas, and I believe that's now uh, in multiple languages and, of course, in paperback and, and doing very well and tells the story of uh, the commodity trading world uh, in an accessible way. Yeah, I think we have 13 languages now, uh, most recently Arabic. Okay, well, fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, yeah, look forward to having you again on, on the show again in the future. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.